Well, my name is Tommy. I'm really glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, We are coming to the end of our sermon series called Fired Up, and it's coinciding, as I mentioned, with the end of the semester. This is our last two-service Sunday. We've got baptisms this afternoon. Uh, We're also welcoming our newest group of of members to the the church, the church family. So it's just like a really exciting day all across the board. So um, last week, you know, as we continue and finish up this, this, this sermon series, um, last week we looked at a few verses that gave us insight into Paul's perspective on his ministry and his life. In his letter to Timothy, uh, Paul takes a second he, and he reflects on his own life as he's facing this future execution. Um, and it's really the best reaction, the best mental place that you can be in if you know that you're about to die. Um, Paul doesn't have any regrets as he looks back. He, he's completely satisfied with how he's run his race. Um, he's at peace knowing that he, he did fight the good fight um, and, and having kept his faith all the way to the end. He's not only fearless in the face of death, but he's actually anticipating what's coming next. I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy, but that's the place that he's in. And really, he's excited about this, this vision that he has of, of receiving this crown of righteousness from Jesus himself as he crosses that finish line. And, and one of the questions that we grappled with was, how do we get to this place? How can we ourselves be in this place? How do we feel as, as content and at peace with how we've carried out the ministry that God has given us to fulfill in our lifetime? How, how do we not have regrets or, or how do we not fear things as, as we face our death moving forward? And we saw that Paul was able to get to this place by just constantly pouring himself out in faith for the sake of the gospel throughout his life of discipleship to Jesus. He didn't leave anything in his cup. He upended it completely as a sacrifice to God. And so that exhortation was for us also to do the same. And so this morning, we're looking at really the last few verses in Paul's uh, letter here written to Timothy. And, and, and what we're going to see is the humanity of Paul. We're going to see the faithfulness of God. And finally, we're going to see uh, Paul's final words ever written. So pray with me one more time, and we're going to dive into the text. God, we thank you for this opportunity to read your word, and we pray that you would make it clear to us that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, God, and that you would soften our hearts uh, and transform us through it. And we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in 2 Timothy 4. Um, If you have your Bibles, if you have your phones, make sure they're booted up. Starting in verse 9, I'll give you a second to get there. We're going to start in verse 9. This is Paul. He's saying, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. There's a lot here in these last verses. There, there's a lot of practical things that Paul is talking about, um, and, and there's a lot of detail that we can get lost in. But really, while Paul's faith here at the end of his life um, 
would really represent like this mighty champion finishing some 30 years of ministry and receiving this glorious crown of joy. There's like all this excitement, this celebration as Paul is finishing. His physical and emotional state was very different to that. And it's really important to read these verses and understand that though Paul has this, this greater, this imperishable hope in the gospel, that didn't make him completely immune to the very real physical and emotional challenges that, that pressed hard on him here at the end of his life. And here's what we can take from that is that it is possible to have an undercurrent of joy and peace while simultaneously experiencing intense grief sadness, loneliness, physical pain, and discomfort. It's possible that those two things exist in the same space. And Paul is writing to Timothy, almost, almost pleading with him in verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. Why? In verse 10 and 11, it says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Paul is, is lonely in prison, and he's longing for his beloved son, Timothy, to be with him, to fellowship with him, to encourage him. We can relate to this, can't we? My daughter, Chloe, she's three years old, and whenever she's sick, hurt, tired, sad, she goes, Daddy, can you hold me? Can you hold me? And, and, and I'm a fixer, so in these moments, it's kind of tough for me and, because there's really no tangible thing that I can do, right? Like, I can't unstub her toe. I can't, like, make her not fall down or make her really not feel sad. But what I can do is I can hold her. I, I can have her in my arms. And, and it doesn't fix the situation, uh, but it, it does help her. She stops crying, right? She feels comforted in that moment. And I think for us, we need to not underestimate the power of encouragement uh, that, that we have by just being present with other people. Being present with other people. We often worry about what we can say, or what we can do for someone to encourage them, what we can bring as a gift or some sort of like verbal encouragement, right? To, to help pick someone up and, and lift them out of their crummy situation. But I think sometimes God might be just calling us to, to, to be physically present with somebody in the same physical space, letting them know as tangibly as possible they are not alone in whatever they're experiencing. I think this is just what Paul is longing for in part as he sat in that prison waiting to be executed. He just, he just wanted a friend to sit with him and be with him. There's nothing to say there, nothing that you can teach Paul, right? Paul knows. He knows the gospel, and we see that on display. He knows what's coming. He's excited about what's coming, but he's still lonely. Like he wants a person to be with him. And Paul had reasons to feel this way. So not only is he in prison awaiting his execution, he points out uh, the fact that his cohort, his, his fellowship, his brothers, that he's been doing ministry and life with every single day is, is dwindling significantly. We see a few people leaving Paul. First, Demas, who Paul adds, in love with this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Here's someone that is choosing not to fight the good fight, who's choosing not to run his race, who's, who's in all likeliness not persevering in the faith and, and has abandoned Paul in his ministry. Those of us who have had friends or family that have walked away from the faith can relate to the pain and the sadness that Paul would be feeling as he reported this to Timothy for the first time. We also see other, uh, uh, other few people as well who, who are leaving uh, Paul's fellowship. We see um, Crescens, Titus, and Tychicus, 
who are running the race, they are fighting the good fight, but God has just sent them to different places in their mission to spread the gospel and to grow the kingdom. They're being dispersed. And Paul's tight-knit group of brothers are, are just are being broken up a little bit. And God is, has given them a season where they were able to be together, to be mutually encouraged, but now it's a time to be sent into different directions. And even though it's mostly for good reason, it's, it's still painful for Paul, right? I'm sure you can remember a time when you had a close group of friends doing life with each other, and then for whatever circumstances, whatever reason, it, things had to be broken up, and people had to go in different directions. We're, we're experiencing some of that at Mercy House this summer, we have very beloved people who have been huge parts of our community dispersing for the glory of God, for the growing of the kingdom. It doesn't make it any less painful for those people who are involved. See, Paul, isn't this machine that you just like drop somewhere and, and churches get built, right? And then you just pick them up and put them somewhere and another church gets built. Churches do get built wherever you drop them, but he's not a machine. He, he's a human being, right? He desires, he, he actually needs companionship and fellowship to do his mission. And so look, if, if you are lonely, if, if you're longing for companionship and, and for discipleship, if you're desiring just a friend or a brother or a sister, that, that's not a bad thing. It's not a sign of weakness. It's not selfish of you to just say, I just want a friend to hang out with. We, we are made for community and for fellowship. And this is why we push and encourage you so hard to get plugged in here at Mercy House. Not just to grow in your faith, to mature as disciples of Jesus, or, or to use your gifts to help grow the church. Those are all absolutely reasons that we want you to get plugged in. But they're not the only reason. To experience fellowship and friendship with other believers as well. For you to not, be, not have to run this race and fight this fight alone. And so you might think, I just can't find those people to click with. I can't find anyone to gel with. There's really no one like me. I can't connect on that level. Like, I can say hi and talk about the weather, but I can't, I just can't get to that level. And, and what I would say is, is to just keep pressing in. I know that that's a hard thing to hear, but just to keep pressing in, to keep opening up to people, to keep talking to people. And I know for some of us, that's a really terrifying thing, to just continue opening up and to continue trying to find those people who can be our brothers and our sisters. But I think here's the reality that we live in, is that the church is one of the most incredible places to experience true fellowship because the common denominator in those relationships is not your tastes or your preferences or your personality types, right? Bonds between believers are not rooted in hobbies. They're not rooted in your place in life right now or your social or your economic status. You're not connected because of the sports that you played growing up. Christ's followers are united and bound together by the love of Christ and the common experience of grace through the gospel. And unity and fellowship uh, is something through that that we get to experience that's going to transcend any worldly basis for friendship and one that lasts for eternity. So you name a book club or a play group that can do that, right? There's none. This is the beauty of Christian fellowship. And I have been so blessed by relationships with people who I would never have anything to do with if it were not for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have poured my heart out. I've had others pour their heart 
out to me, been knit together with brothers who are closer to me than blood, who, who if it not for the gospel and what Jesus had done in my life and in their lives, we would never literally be caught dead in the same room as each other. But by the grace of God, he's pulled us together and given me awesome, awesome relationships who I, I would just never t- know to talk to if it weren't for the gospel. That's the gospel. And so younger believers who, who haven't experienced this, I would say keep reaching out, keep trying to connect with people, keep talking to people. And for the mature believers who have experienced this type of fellowship, uh, take others under your wing. I mean, if you've experienced it, this is your time to allow others to experience it as well. Expand your network of brothers and sisters. God is going to give you the capacity to do this. He's going to give you the capacity to love others, to give your time and your attention, to be able to interact with more people, to, to be able to just be a friend, be a companion, be the physical presence of encouragement for those in our church family who are longing for it, who need it. It's what we're called to do. It's what we're called to be for one another. It's part of fulfilling our ministry. And so friendship and fellowship, though, they're not without risk. They're not without risk. Paul experienced this, and, and it's coming uh, in light as he communicates these final words. We see his experience of desertion by Demas, and also this great harm having been done by this guy named Alexander. And this might be one of those reasons some of us have such a hard time engaging in deep, meaningful fellowship that there is this fear of the reality that we might be seriously hurt, that we might experience, quote-unquote, great harm by people that we are vulnerable with and that we open up to. And I'm not going to stand here and say that it's not a possibility or that it hasn't happened to me, because that would be a lie. We all have experienced being hurt by those that we've opened up to, those that we've chosen to love, those that we've fellowshiped with, those that we've trusted. And I'd argue that really it's only those that we're closest to that that can hurt us in this way. Those that we keep at arm's length, length, those that we don't let in, they don't have access to be able to hurt us, right? That's why they're in a safe space over there. They don't really have the ability to hurt us because they don't know us. They're not invited into our hearts. But the fellowship that God calls us to is the fellowship of the heart not just at arm's length, not just talking about the weather, but deeper fellowship rooted in Christ. Mercy House, we're called to love as Christ loved us. We are called to be vulnerable. As Christ has gone out on that limb and experienced vulnerability to the point of death in order to fully love us. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from C.S. Lewis on the idea of love and vulnerability. He, he talks about this in, in his book, The Four Loves. He says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. 
Yes, we see Paul's heartbreak and his hurt, but that's evidence of a man who decided to love as Christ loved him, making himself vulnerable. Paul was a man who ran his race, who fought the good fight, which included loving his, his brothers and his sisters at the cost of being vulnerable to hurt and pain. But how, how can we do that? Right? We constantly see Paul being the shining example of what it means to run your race and fight your fight. And then we see us, right? And we're like, how, how do we do that, though? How can we pour ourselves out like Paul did? How can we be vulnerable and put ourselves in these positions where we're susceptible to being hurt? Well, look at what Paul says and, and how he's able to do it. Verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If we, if we can be honest, the most common response when you're hurt or abandoned or betrayed by somebody is anger, bitterness, and resentment. We as a culture wouldn't count it too hard against, too much against Paul if he had some harsh words or maybe some lingering animosity toward those who had abandoned him. Those who, as he's pointing out here, didn't even show up to stand by his side when, when he needed his friends the most, but they deserted him in his moment of need. So it would make sense if Paul was upset, especially if Paul was facing death, to maybe be at least like a little bit negative toward these people as he's reminiscing about these people who have abandoned him. But he's not. Paul is not. He makes an effort here not just to forgive them, uh, but to, to defend them. That's crazy to me. He's saying, may it not be charged against them. Don't judge them for this. Don't hold it over their heads. Don't treat them differently because of how they treated me. I'm not, so you shouldn't either. Look at Paul's last words here. In a moment where anger and frustration, bitterness, resentment seem to be just inevitable products of betrayal, abandonment, and hurt, Paul says no. He says no. He chooses to not let his pride and his fleshly, worldly mentality reflex of, of wanting to harden his heart. He doesn't let that dictate his response. How does he do that, though? Does he just will himself to not be angry, to not be upset? Look at verse 16. So he says, May it not be charged against them, verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul's hope here is in Jesus, not man. His focus is the gospel and it's not on himself. So Paul is able to, to not resent these people who have hurt him because he's not looking to them to be his savior. He's not looking to them to be his comfort. He's not looking to them to be his strength and his salvation. He's looking to Jesus to do that. We're able to get over our hurt and release our resentment and bitterness toward people who have hurt us when we can do two things, when we can release that burden of expectation that we may have placed on them of being more than the broken human they are, and also when we look at Christ to fulfill our deepest longings 
and our desires. So Paul was hurt by these people, but he wasn't crushed. He wasn't crushed because he wasn't expecting them to be his Savior. He wasn't burdening them to be Christ, his Savior, his strength, his everything. And look, this this isn't meant to diminish the hurt and the pain that humans can cause one another. Not in the slightest. For, For me, this is part of my story. I was abused and I was abandoned when I was a baby. It was a horrible situation. I was adopted out of that by the grace of God. And what I'm saying is that it's not like I just needed to get over what happened to me. What I'm saying is that my bitterness and my resentment toward my birth parents could only be healthily dealt with when I was able to see the surpassing worth and value of Christ and also when I was able to look at Christ for the first time for everything that I ever wanted out of my birth parents, for the love, for the care, to be told that I'm valuable, that I matter, that that I'm worth something, things that every child, every single human being is made to hear. These, there was nothing that I could do to, to get my birth parents to say those things or be those things for me. But in Christ, as my focus shifted toward him, off of myself, off of other things that I was looking for to get that attention, that affirmation, when I looked to Christ, as my knowledge of Christ and what he had done for me on the cross grew, my heart and my soul were strengthened for the first time in a way that no human, no accomplishment, no material thing could ever strengthen me. So that, that's my story. And you're going to hear a lot more stories at Puffer's Pond today of how God was able to strengthen these people. See, in my situation, my birth parents, though, they, they weren't believers. But that doesn't mean that this type of trauma and hurt can only be done outside of the church, right? Sure, we're, we're called to be Christ to one another, but we fail at that all of the time. And those who are called to be Christ to us will also fail us. So it is crucial for the sake of our hearts to not be hardened to the point of bitterness and resentment and becoming incapable of letting anyone else in or loving anyone else that we, like Paul, look to Christ to be Christ. To hear Christ's promise that he'll never leave us or forsake us, especially as everyone around us, believer or not, does. If you have a hard time with this idea of making disciples, of pouring yourself into somebody else, this might be a place to check your heart. Have you experienced hurt? Have you experienced betrayal? Has your trust been abused? Because if that hasn't been brought to the cross, you cannot engage in meaningful discipleship, which requires vulnerability, transparency, and trust. If you cannot do those things, you, you, cannot, you cannot do discipleship. That stuff needs to be processed and dealt with. And so th- this is a, a note, but it's really important. It, if you have experienced this deep hurt, if you've experienced abuse or any kind of trauma, know that we as a church family are sincerely sensitive to that. Know that you don't have to bear it alone and that one of the first steps is reaching out to somebody to share what you have experienced. And and as much as I'll be honest in saying that people will fail you, that doesn't mean that your brothers and your sisters won't try their absolute hardest to lovingly sit with you and walk with you so that you can find healing and strength in Christ. 
Not in any program, not in any relationship here, but in Christ. So here's the, here's the good news, though. When we do rely on Christ to be our strength, when we focus on him for our identity, when we look to him for our affirmation to be loved, to be strengthened, we become a godly force to be reckoned with by the grace of God. This is what made Paul's ministry so potent and so fruitful. We saw over and over again through numerous trials that just, and just downright crazy, miraculous situations for Paul that Paul was able to persevere because of his hope, because of his trust, because of his, his source of strength was never in his circumstances. It was never in the people around him. It wasn't in having a strong fellowship surrounding him. It was in Jesus Christ. And Paul was an enigma to the world at this time. He, 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 like, people didn't know what to do with him. You couldn't leave him just to do his own thing because he'd plant churches that would go on to disrupt the entire world, causing social and economic upheaval wherever he planted churches. You couldn't just beat him, which they tried several times, because it would just make him preach all the more boldly. You couldn't imprison him because he would just convert every single person in the jail, including the jailers and the guards. You couldn't threaten to kill him because in his own words, he says, to die is to gain. Paul was this godly force to be reckoned with by the grace of God and the empowerment of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, if we want to be like Paul, if we want to run our race and fight our fight and keep our faith and have fruitful ministries of pouring ourselves out, it has to start with looking to Jesus as our sole source of strength and hope. Paul's tenacity of looking to Christ is as strong as ever here at the end of his life as he's awaiting his execution. Verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Look at where Paul stands right now as he's about to die. He's saying, the Lord's going to rescue me. He's going to rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The diagnostic question for us as we read that this morning is, who are we or what are we looking to to be Christ? Who are we going to to find strength? Who or what are we going to when we need that jolt of hope or that jolt of joy in order to get us through the day. The, the exhortation for all of us this morning is to look to Christ, both in healing from past hurts and to fuel our ministry and ministry that can at times bring us into these scary, uncomfortable, challenging situations. So our final verse this morning is going to be uh, the last one Paul the Apostle wrote before being executed. So let's read them and finish out this morning. Verse 19, greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. 
The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Paul's last words are pretty simple, humble, really selfless. He's not making a huge moment for himself, no epic monologue about like the captain going down with the ship or making the last stand, something that I would want to make if I was about to die, right? But Paul doesn't do that. We don't know if Timothy was able to make it to visit Paul before his execution. I'm sure that Timothy did do his best to get there as Paul charged him to. And Paul's last words really encapsulate his ministry. His, his belief in the gospel, um, his constant mindfulness of his ministry and his mission, and a blessing of grace to Timothy. And notice how he's not really talking about himself at all. His final checklist is very mission-focused. His final words are a blessing of grace to his beloved son. See, there's something so beautiful to the simplicity of Paul signing off the air, so to speak, for the last time. And perhaps it was because Paul had been in this place before. The way that he lived his life, the way that he ran his race and fought the fight, it constantly put him in very precarious situations where the outcome would either be life or death. So in part, waiting for his impending execution wasn't anything new for Paul. He's ready to die, but he's also ready to keep running if God would tell him to. But whether he's used to it or not, um, isn't this the place that, that, that we ought to be in as followers of Christ? For us, tomorrow is not assured to us. And this afternoon is not assured to us. Your next breath is not assured to you. It's all God's grace and his mercy allowing our hearts to continue beating and beating and beating and beating. We, we might not be in prison awaiting our execution, but if life is a snap of the fingers, our death then, compared to the vastness of eternity, is just as around the corner as Paul's execution. And this isn't made, meant to make us feel sad, but it, it is meant to encourage us to consider and reflect on our lives in the context of eternity. We talked about this last week, about the importance of having this perspective of eternity as we consider our lives and what we're doing right now. And as I think about my life and my death and what it would be like to be in Paul's shoes waiting to be executed, I can't help but imagine being terrified, right? I'm not going to stand here and say, I'm not like a Paul. I'm not like, yeah, bring it. Let's go. Like, here's my neck. You can take my head, right? It's pretty much Paul's attitude. That's not me, right? I would be crying, I'm sure. I would be very, very terrified. But I'd also, I'd really want to desire the same level of peace and satisfaction and and faith that Paul has in this moment. I want to be able to confront my death today or, or to continue fighting on another day, both with peace and excitement. Look at what he writes to the Philippians. I uh, don't know if it will be behind you, but it's Philippians 1, verse 20 through 26. This is Paul writing. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that faith, will, faith with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, be a, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, and that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul lived in this space. It wasn't just at the end of his life in 2 Timothy where he was ready to die or ready to keep running. This was a constant state of existence for Paul, ready to lay down his life and join Jesus in glory for all of eternity or to continue laying his, his life down day after day, pouring his life out in his ministry and allowing others to experience the glory of Christ. That's where Paul existed. That was his mental state. That was his transformed mindset. Paul's ministry is focused on this internal discipleship within the family of believers and the outside mission of making new disciples which is what we're called to as disciples as well. For Paul, that meant pouring himself out, engaging in fellowship with his brothers and sisters, choosing to connect with people and love people at the risk of heartbreak, of betrayal, and abandonment. Every week we take communion. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after dinner, he took the cup, and in the same way, he took the cup and said, This is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. We take communion every week here at Mercy House to, to, to remind ourselves, to, re, to, to remember that, that Jesus is, is the ultimate example of being on mission to encourage and build up those inside the church while remaining focused on the mission of reaching those outside the church. Both required incredible vulnerability, and, and nothing is more vulnerable than hanging naked on a cross. Nothing. This is what we remember when we take communion every Sunday. Jesus, who who finished his ministry, who ran his race, who fought the good fight while fueled with a compassion for others and an unrelenting focus on Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, on God the Father to sustain him. The great news is that those of us who are following Jesus have Jesus to strengthen us, just like Paul did. We have the Holy Spirit living inside us, who Paul encourages Timothy in chapter 1 by saying, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. And we have our brothers and sisters as well, who by the grace of God can act as Christ in person. That is something to remember as we take communion this morning. If you're new to Mercy House, um, the way that we do it, you're going to form two lines down the center. You're going to take your communion, swing around the outside, back to your seats. There's no cue to do it. Uh, We ask that you do it at your own time. Um, At the same time, there's going to be several of us in the back. If you'd like to pray or talk or share or pray for us, um, we highly encourage you to take advantage of that as well.